Welcome to Ill-Equipped History, where two best friends tell you stories from history that we're not equipped to do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Morgan, joined by my lovely co-host, Emily. Hey, y'all! I don't really have anything to get us started with. Um, I will say, if you heard last week's episode, we do batch recording. The margaritas have worn off now. Okay. Um, So we're, we're... I feel like I need another one. Does anybody okay. have a splash of something for this tea? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I've actually, I've gotten myself a hard seltzer, a ranch water. Oh, and we've I switched. A, I got an orange in it. Look at that. Oh, fancy. okay. Bougie. I would like to point out that the margaritas that we had earlier were dollar margaritas. They put little balls of light in said margaritas and they were flashing like strobes unnecessary but wanted thank you i didn't know i needed that in my life all you're still saying margarita you're still saying margarita (laughs) i don't know why i said like that some words come out weird (laughs) when we first started recording emily was like listen i've had three margaritas (laughs) on the margaritas they have little light bulbs in them they're good margaritas (laughs) I might put it on a social, our socials, because. <laughs> uh, I don't know why I say margaritas. Margaritas. <laughs> There's no R. Margaritas. <laughs> you got some truck stop Betty coming through. <laughs> margaritas. Uh, apparently, uh, what's the stuff you put on pancakes? The golden liquidy stuff. Syrup. It's syrup. <laughs> I say syrup. And I don't know why I say it with a hard E instead of like, what is it, a Y? It's supposed to be there. Yes. It's okay. It's okay. Still love you, even though you talk funny. Someone's got to, because my husband just makes fun of me all the time, which he's currently doing, because he can hear me. Um, Okay. I'm ready. All right. Let's get started into our skit for today. It's the early 10th century in Japan. A governor of a province is looking around serenely in his estate. Ah, we are finally prospering. We are growing enough rice to feed our families, our children are growing up strong, and the gods have blessed us with a good weather. What could possibly go wrong? A messenger runs up to the governor, panting. Your lordship, another clan that's on his way is coming to wage war. War? What? How can this be? Sir, they're coming to take our lands. They've already invaded two other provinces. (sighs) Why am I always the last to know about this? You know what to do. Release our elite squad. The Samurai. Do you know what we're talking about today? I'm going to take a gander that we're going to talk about the Samurai. Yes. We're talking about the history of the Samurai in Japan. Cool. It's exciting. I know. I was hit with inspiration climbing into my car to go to work one morning. And I was like, samurai. And then I did it. 
Don't you just love when the universe just like yells something in your ear and you're like that? Yep, that's it. Fine. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So to start off, some of my sources kind of contradict each other a little bit. I'll try to mention it when I can. But yeah, I'll. it was very kind of confusing to really get the facts a little bit because there yeah. are different accounts. At one point, I'm going to go through more of like the chronology of samurai in Japan, and I use two different websites, and they had like differing dates. And I'll bring, I'll mention that too. It's only by a couple of years, but still. So I'll do my best to keep things consistent. I do want to say, I'm going to go ahead and put out a trigger warning for this episode. There are going to be mentions of suicide because that was a custom of samurai and i'm not going to go into like the gory details because they honestly made me nauseous when i was looking at it but i am going to talk about the custom in general detail why they conducted this custom what it meant and very generally how they did it so just saying it if you do not want to listen to that it's not the whole episode and i'll give another trigger warning before I start talking about it um, but there will be I think I'll, I keep everything condensed in this one block of time so once I give my trigger warning you can skip forward a couple minutes um, and we'll be past it and I don't think I bring it up again in my episode cool. so sorry Emily you're going to be stuck listening to um, that for the whole the whole time that's fine that's yeah. exactly what I need to listen to right before bed it's cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and talk about my sources really quick because I quote them a lot and I just want y'all to know. I watched a documentary called Samurai the Last Warrior. And there's these two historians that are in this documentary that I'm going to refer to a lot. Their names are, I bolded them, so uh, Stephen Turnbull and Dave Lowry. Um, they were... They're historians that cover Japanese history, and they talked a lot about samurai customs and just Japan history in general. There was also a PBS article I found called Japan Memoirs of a Secret Empire. There's a Columbia PDF I found, like from the University of Columbia, about different ages and eras throughout Japan. Um, The History of Japan at www.japanguide.com. Um, there's a website called myco.com and it talks about different uh, traditions of samurai mm-hmm. and then japaneseweeki.com I used. So I try to stick with sources that were from Japan. And I think part of that, this some of the sites I think were probably initially in Japan, Japanese and mm-hmm. they're translated into English. And so some things may not. I was trying to make things make sense, but... That may be the source of why some things may not be completely accurate in the way I describe it, because I'm getting a translated version of it, and Japanese doesn't always translate cleanly into English. So I'm going to do my best, and also mm-hmm. I'm going to do my best with pronunciations. I'm not Japanese, so <laughs> I'll probably yeah. gonna butcher everything. Horribly. We're trying. So, yeah. We're really trying. Okay. So what is a samurai, and how did they get started? So a samurai is an elite warrior who knows specialized fighting tactics. The samurai were trained with a bow and arrow, 
a spear and a sword. Those are the main weapons of a samurai. And I'll get more into detail about those later. So there, there's one website that had different theories on how samurai emerged. This first one is the most common, and that's this is the one that's most frequently cited as being why the samurai came into being. So the website called it Kaihatsu Ryoshu of Shiaden Theory. And Kaihatsu Ryoshu are landowners. So they owned like parcels of land. I'm assuming like like governors of provinces and towns. Mm-hmm where people would live and then they would like farm those lands so samurai came about in a similar way as knights in medieval europe there were people in communities who saw a need to defend their lands from invaders and barbarians and samurai evolved from a similar need and this is according to historian hiroyuki miura additionally samurai from this area originate in the eastern part of japan uh, namely the kanto area according to takashi ishimoda who's another historian, samurai were armed guards of sorts to protect the lands of nobles from rivals and political opponents. According to Ishimoto and other historians, when samurai began rising in prominence, they eliminated the antiquated political structure, and uh, which had been ruled by the wealthy, like the aristocrats and the religious leaders, and they brought mm-hmm. Japan into the medieval age. And I'll get into a little bit more detail about that shift when I start talking about the history of Japan specifically. So the first theory is that they there is a need for defenders from mm-hmm. invaders. And they were assigned to like the, the higher ups within those towns and provinces. The second theory is the samurai function theory. And these are endorsed by historians Shinichi Sato, Masataka Uwayakote, Yoshimi Toda, Masaki Takahashi, and others. So essentially, samurai were important military strategists and officers hired by high-ranking families and local governments around the Kyoto region. And Kyoto is more um, central, mm-hmm. I think. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but it's a different area. So this was saying basically that... There were military officers before and during the age of the samurai, but they were not considered samurai. Samurai is a lot more elite. Mm -hmm. They were specialized in a specific form of military art, which I'll go into a little bit more in just a second. And there were also coinciding with military officers who were of similar rank and status as samurai, but they were trained under a different system of martial arts uh, called the Ritsuryo system. And they could be in public or private militias, while samurai were involved in the government or the military. So they were more public warriors okay. by the government, and military officers could be in, like, private militias. So I think they kind of started at the same time, and they have, like, similar roots. They're just slightly different theories on one was more of, like, defense, and one was more, like... Uh, like a like an academy of sorts almost i think okay so i hope that makes sense because i think that's the best way i can explain yeah. it uh this was from a site that i think was translated and there were some things that were hard to kind of grasp so i hope i Got did it. a good enough job explaining that it makes sense um, so, to me thank you you so what the the way that the samurai followed is called bushido okay and it's a systemized thought 
cult-like kind of belief system that generally forms the basis of value and ethical standards of samurai hierarchy during feudal Japan. And that's a quote from the website that I got this from. So it's it's a way of life for the samurai. Mm-hmm. And actually, in the, doc- the documentary I watched, Do literally means the way. So this is the way of the warrior. Okay. So this ideology is believed to have first been named by the book Koyo Gunkan, a re- record of the military exploits of the Takeda family by Masanobu Kasaka. And this is another quote from the website because I did a really good job of saying this in a way I couldn't. Quote, it is not a way of thought or philosophy which is useful in actual battle, but is necessary in all ages due to its morality and respecting those of noble character. Bushido is a way of survival as an individual fighter, which focuses on developing oneself and the family, bringing them an advantage by achieving military renown. Um, And the website also states this is different from Bushido as a moral system. Quote, Mm -hmm. Bushido as a moral system is being loyal to one's lord, being dutiful to one's parents, controlling oneself strictly, being merciful to those of lower rank, having sympathy to the enemy, abstaining from selfish desire, respecting justice, and respecting honor more than wealth. So that's kind of the, like, that kind of way of life and thinking is actually still implemented in a lot of Japan today. Yeah. The kind of values of the samurai. Um, Training. So samurai started training in childhood, especially individuals that belong to samurai families. And I'll get more into that later. So at five years old, training started with wooden swords. Oh, my God. At seven seven years old, pupils were given wakizashi, which I think is like a legit sword. At nine years old, children were sent to live with and train with a sword master and by 13 years old a boy could be considered a samurai and could go on the battlefield what yeah 13 mm-hmm. i'm sorry i'm just thinking of my six-year-old son with a sword yeah no he would have a wooden sword at six years old but still like he would already it was a complete way of life yeah and like like basically from birth they're being exposed to the values of the samurai and they're like, all right, you're going to be training to be a samurai because that is your legacy and your honor. Wow. Uh, this is another quote. Samurai school was a unique combination of physical training, Chinese studies, poetry, and spiritual discipline. And Japan had a lot of influence from China. Yeah. Um, it's actually, I'm pretty sure that's how Japan became populated. It was people from China moving over to Japan. And so they had a lot of influence. I'll get more into that in a little bit as well. It wasn't until a while later they started kind of splitting off a little mm-hmm. bit. But I talked a little bit about it in the Wu Zetian episode. But the, the Chinese emperor, Japan had some influence yeah. from China. Anyway, so kendo, which is um, a sword fighting technique, is literally the way of the sword. And bushido is literally the way of the warrior. Wow. So cool. um, while boys were the only ones able to become samurai, girls also received this training and were equipped to defend their communities if needed. So, I mean, they still got the training. They still got the, the education, but they were not most of the time, not able to become legitimate samurai. They just didn't get the upon, title, in, yeah. They didn't get the title? No. Okay. 
But in my research, there have been a few female samurai, and there was one I found called Tamoe Gozen. I definitely want to cover it at a later date because she's a badass, and this episode's already going to be really long. Okay. So I I'm not I don't go into detail with her now, but I definitely want to cover her later because I was like going through her history, and I was like, oh my god, there's so much, and this is already a very long episode. <laughs> Um, so Tomoe Gozen is a female samurai. Okay. So I'm going to give the trigger warning here. Okay. Trigger warning for discussion of suicide. Uh, give it, skip for like two or three minutes and then we won't talk about it again. So, okay. So the, the, a form of ritualistic suicide conducted by the samurai is called seppuku. Mm-hmm. It's also called harikiri. And I think harikiri is from the Chinese characters. Okay. Or a, I don't know which Chinese language because there's several, but harikiri and seppuku from all I could figure out was pretty similar. I think seppuku is a specific form of ritualistic suicide and harikiri is more of like the general. Okay. Because in a documentary I was watching, uh, they were saying there are multiple ways to commit suicide. Seppuku specifically is where the abdomen is cut with a sword. Okay. Um, and the reason they cut the abdomen was that the there was a belief from the indigenous religion in Japan that the soul was in the abdomen, was in the belly. Okay. So they would cut to release the soul. The first form known of seppuku was performed by Minamoto no Tamatomo, who was a samurai in the late Heian period, which was right when samurai were first starting to, like, the belie- that culture and that belief system was starting to spread throughout Japan. Mm-hmm. When seppuku began being practiced, it was done as a way to honorably die instead of being beheaded by the enemy, but also that, quote, a heroic act of seppuku is associated with a certain reverence, but seppuku itself was nothing more than an act of suicide and was not considered to be particularly honorable, end quote. So it was more like you did it to restore your honor, but if you just did it, that wasn't what was honorable. It was the situation that made it honorable. So you couldn't just commit seppuku and on like a random Tuesday for no reason and it be honorable. It is your, the, the enemy is you're going to be defeated so you took matters into your own hands or mm-hmm. um to redeem yourself am i understanding that right from something that you've done maybe or have been alleged like have been accused of doing like the right. doc i didn't write it in my notes but dave lowry who is a historian in the documentary i watched said that like if someone accused you of wrongdoing yeah you would commit seppuku in like show your insides and say, look, I'm pure. I did not do this wrong deed. So that wasn't very common, but it did happen. And there's, I'll get into it in just a second, but um, it was also done to like honor the master. Um, it's yeah. Yeah. So the site, the website I got this information from says that samurai would not immediately commit seppuku upon being captured by an enemy Apparently, a lot would escape and live undercover. Okay. So it's not like something they wanted to do. It's not something they are like, okay, now that I've been captured, I'm going to commit seppuku. It was more like, I would rather do this than be killed by the enemy, but yeah. I'm going to try to escape. Right. So if a samurai or his master lost a battle, the samurai had lost everything. 
Uh, they had lost their dignity. They lost. He had lost everything of meaning to him. So the samurai could potentially regain his honor by harakiri or committing seppuku. And it was super serious. Like it was not a lighthearted affair at all. And the ideology of seppuku shifted after Hideyoshi Toyotomi united Japan, which I'll get into later. And samurai began being forced to commit seppuku as punishment. Mm. So like if you dishonored yourself, you would be forced to commit seppuku. So here's different motives that one would commit seppuku for. So there's oibara, which is following one's master into death. Sumebara which was being forced as a result of one's professional responsibility or duty. Munanbara, or suicide and mortification. And I assume that's like if you've humiliated yourself. Mm. To avoid a humiliation of capture by an enemy. Uh, and this was limited to commanders specifically. Okay. If a commander was captured by an enemy. And commanders would also do commit seppuku to spare their, their own families and their soldiers from being killed. Wow. And then if a samurai prematurely attacked in battle, this was considered dishonorable. And Iyasu Takugawa, who I'll talk about later, mandated this rule and that the offenders' families and retainers would also be forced to commit suicide if a samurai acted dishonorably. Good lord. By prematurely attacking in battle. Samurai began following their masters into death after Mishima Geki Nuodo committed seppuku after his master... Yoriyuki Hasakawa died of natural causes. It started becoming more widespread during the Edo period, which was a time of peace. There wasn't really a lot of wars going on during the Edo period. And the specific practice of following the master into death was banned in 1665. I'm sure they were losing a lot of samurai that way. I mean, wow. The website I got this from goes into more detail about different ways to commit seppuku, but they honestly made me feel really nauseous, so I'm not going to go into detail okay, about Okay, thank that. you. But you you can find the details on the website, and it is the, um, I believe it is the History of Japan, japanguide.com website. I believe that's where I got it from. Okay, let me go back to, I'm almost done talking about it. Let's see. So later on, as the custom kept going, uh, an assistant would was brought into the process. So, because initially the process of just cutting the abdomen was a very long, slow, painful death, and so what ended up shifting was that now there were assistants, and as soon as the samurai would cut their own abdomen, the assistant would decapitate them with a katana. Oh, to spare them to make the death very quick. Okay. And then the documentary mentions a man named Nita Yoshisada from the 14th century who allegedly committed suicide by cutting off his own head. But that has not been confirmed. How would you logistically? The I think it was Turnbull that was talking about it. And he said, like, the swords were sharp enough. Maybe it was possible. Like, if he just, like, did that to himself. I don't know. Because the katanas were extremely yeah. sharp. They're rumored to cut through seven corpses at once. Good Lord above. Yeah, extremely sharp. Okay, I just got a couple more little points and then I'll be done. I wouldn't go into more so much detail if it wasn't so important to their cult. Yeah, the samurai like culture. So seppuku was also a form of punishment that is an honorable way to die versus being beheaded or crucified. Quote, which were considered dishonorable punishments, not befitting members of the samurai class. 
So seppuku as a whole, as, as punishment, was banned in 1873, and it was replaced by hanging as capital punishment, which I think is still how Japan doles out capital punishment. To this day? I'm not 100% sure. I think they still do hanging. I'm not 100% sure. I meant to look it up. And only samurai could commit seppuku. It was a right only specific to samurai. Soldiers and commoners were not allowed to commit seppuku. They could commit suicide, but not specifically seppuku. And that's all I have about seppuku. (laughs) The last hanging execution in Japan was in July of 2022. So yes, they still do that. It's not very common, but it's still, yeah. All right. All right. Samurai had their own specific form of horseback archery called yabusame. It's traditional Japanese samurai archery conducted on horseback. So this is kind of where I saw a discrepancy from the documentary I was watching was saying that archery like when samurai were first coming into into being their primary mode of warfare was on horseback with Mm -hmm. archery but then another source i saw said that during the kamakura period which i'll get into a shogun saw that his samurai were decreasing in their skill in archery and he was like made sure that they were specifically trained in it Mm -hmm. and it's actually still the traditional method of it is still practiced today on like rituals and ceremonies and stuff in Japan. Okay. So maybe, maybe it was, it did become less common because horses were a lot more difficult to get around. And so maybe the art of like archery on horseback, it declined as populations got bigger. And then the Shogun Minamoto no Yoritomo wanted to make sure that they kept that practice alive right. so that's my that's my hypothesis i don't know if that actually happened so samurai had their own castles called shiro and they were basically fortresses and currently there are about twenty five thousand castles in japan so a lot of them are ruins but there's a lot of castles <laughs> i want to see one of these castles Oh, I didn't put one in my in the pictures, um, but a big one that shows up repeatedly in my research. Uh, I don't talk about it a whole lot. It's called Osaka Castle, and it was like one of the most heavily fortified castles in Japan until a a conqueror was able to like manipulate his way past the front lines and defenses. That's really cool. <laughs> they because like- it was under siege for like a year, and they were able to break through. Well, not only are they super fortified, but those castles look beautiful. They're gorgeous. Oh, my God. Yeah, they're absolutely gorgeous. I didn't write this down, but okay. in the, the documentary, they were talking about Osaka Castle, and it was talking about the walls yeah. fortifying the, the castle. It was nine miles around. I'm sorry. Did you just say a nine-mile wall around a castle? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. It's crazy. So, each... Um, noble clan or family had a unique crest um, mm-hmm. and those were called kemon and over time samurai would put the emblems of their crest on their armor and katanas and each family or clan had a unique kemon okay i don't know if i'm saying that right i keep on saying kemon like ramon but <laughs> that's ramon. not japanese ramon so now one of the most iconic parts of the samurai is their sword, the katana. 
Yes. So the samurai sword was considered the soul of a samurai. Only samurai could wield them. No one else could have a katana. Oh, and here's where I put before the katana or widespread samurai primarily use bow and arrow. But over time, more foot soldiers and close combat was used. So the sword became more useful. Yeah. Iesu Takagawa marked the sword was the soul of the samurai. Um, we'll talk about him in a in a minute. Turnbull, who's a historian, one of the historians in the documentary I watched, named it as the most high quality sword ever made. And one part of the design of it is that immediately upon unsheathing the sword, you could kill someone with it. And that's like part of its design. So originally, warriors in Japan used straight straight swords called surigi, and this is based on a Chinese design. Yeah. But eventually, a curved sword was developed. So it's wielded with two hands. Yeah. And the back of the sword could be used as a shield. Oh. And the back of the sword was more springy and more flexible. And then the front end of the sword was offensive, and it was extremely sharp, and it was the hardest part of the sword. Lowry, from the documentary, noted that... Oh, no. Turnbull, I'm sorry, says in the documentary, it's basically two different swords in one. And it could be used very effectively for offense and defense. Wow. Lowry noted the curve was developed around the 1300s by metal workers for two different reasons. One, the curve blade was stronger mm-hmm. and it was faster. Um, and again, like with that unsheathment, like with the movement of the body, the sword could immediately be used upon like you taking it out of the scabbard. Whereas like with a long sword, you have to like get the whole thing out and then yeah. you have to like do it. Whereas the katana. That when it seems more yeah, fluid is what i'm trying to say it's yeah. like a fluid motion i'm over here waving yeah. my arms like i have a sword in my hand <laughs> she is <laughs> y'all can't see me <laughs> and again this is also when samurai were fighting more on foot as horses were not as numerous as the population grew and armies grew and in the the documentary they are saying that the terrain in japan is so mountainous yeah that it was hard to get horses everywhere that you needed them to be in very big numbers so as armies grew um there was still cavalry and there were still art horseback archers but there were also growing numbers of foot soldiers yeah and samurai fighting on foot another very iconic piece of the samurai is their armor this is very unique to japan and samurai specifically so the way that their armor was constructed is called lamella construction okay. and it's a lot of in, in the in Europe, knights had like plate armor, so it's mm-hmm. big sheets of like metal that were used defensively. Whereas in Japan, they used scales that were bound together. Okay, and it provided a lot of flexibility to the armor. One for movement, but two, it would deflect weapons. So rather, like the sh- plates would like stop. Yeah, the scales would make weapons bounce off of them. And that included spears, arrows, katanas, regular swords. Like, it was better to deflect the energy going somewhere else and having it stop, like, in your shoulder. Well, you've also got to think about how much lighter that it had to have been mm-hmm. other than, like, the plate armor. Because mm-hmm. trying to move in that can't be easy. But whereas this, with the flexibility and the the lightness of it, had to have been a lot easier. Yeah. And initially, samurai armor was very heavy when they were primarily on horseback. 
because all they had to do was shoot bow and arrow. Like they didn't have to run around and stuff. But as the need for movement on the ground became needed, samurai armor did get lighter yeah. and more a lot more flexible. Helmets of samurai, they're designed to shield the neck. So most helmets have like um like a flap or a shield that goes around the neck. Mm-hmm. And actually, I have some pictures. If you go back to the the skit, um, if you scroll down to the bottom, there are some examples of modern day samurai and the one on the right has like the the deflection for the the neck cool and another key piece of the samurai armor was a face mask originally they were metal plates just to shield the face but over time they started getting more detailed and they didn't say this in the documentary they kind of implied it but a lot of the face masks would have like a big grin and almost embody like a demon and maybe it was to like inflict fear on your enemy i'm scared yeah you can't really see it in the picture because they're a little blurry but both of the face masks have like these grins on them and some would have like whiskers some had like facial hair a lot of them had noses they got really really detailed if that came after me uh uh-uh done i will lay down i'd be running the other way yep for sure Samurai were not just limited to katanas or bows and air- bow and arrows. They were also um, a weapon called a naganata, and it's a spear, and it also has a curved blade. Okay. At the end of the 16th century, samurai began proficiency with muskets. So firearms, and I'll get into everything. I'm like, I'm getting in more detail about this later, because <laughs> I'm just getting the general samurai overview, overview yeah. done before I go into more detail about the his- like, history of Japan and samurai. But in, like, the late 16th century, gunpowder and rifles were brought over. Mm -hmm. And so samurai began incorporating the use of firearms into their military tactics as well. From, like, the late 1500s. Damn. It's weird to think of, like, a samurai with a gun because you always think of them with the katana and, you know, their traditional outfits and then just gun thrown in there yeah it's just weird to think about because that's never talked about ever it's really not and like i didn't even know that until i was watching the documentary and there was a lot of reenactments playing in the documentary of like lines of samurai with rifles and like engaging in like armed combat wow through uh, firearms And then we talked a little bit about, like, the military as a whole in the army. So not everyone in a samurai army was a samurai. Um, Samurai were elite, and a lot of them hired, like, foot soldiers to fight for them. So the soldiers were still very highly trained, but they were not of the samurai class. And a lot of them were permanent hired soldiers. The leader of the army is called the daimyo. Mm Mm-hmm. Or great name. It literally means great name in Japanese. And um, the daimyo was a leader of a clan or family. And they would also lead their militaries for, like, their yeah. clan. And then family members of the daimyo would be leaders of different factions of the the, the battlefield. So, mm-hmm. like, one would be in charge of, like, the samurai. One would be in charge of the archers. One would be in charge of the foot soldiers, etc. And we know a lot about what we know of warfare in Japan from a book called the Gonkimo. And it's a collection of stories of war between the 12th and 14th centuries. Mm-hmm. And essentially the expectation for samurai specifically is that they would fight 
they would find another samurai worth fighting on the battlefield and they would fight to the death. This sometimes happened if they weren't killed by a flying arrow in the middle of battle, <laughs> which happened. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I guess the, the historians were kind of suggesting that them fighting face to face on the battlefield didn't happen quite as often as an unlucky samurai being hit with an arrow. And then during the in the documentary, Turnbull brought up ninjas yeah. uh, who were elite assassins during the era of the samurai. They were even more elite and even more specialized than samurai. And then there was a group called Ronin, and they were samurai who had lost their masters and were seeking new armies to join. So I assume these were not samurai who committed. I guess this is before it became custom for what I talked about earlier. Right. And so when their master had died or whatever happened, they would actually join like new, almost as like mercenaries. Oh. They would like go and get hired by additional armies to fight on their side. Their style. So it was custom for samurai to have top knots or komagi. Mm-hmm. And they shave the tops of their heads. And you'll see that a lot in depictions of samurai. The, shops, the tops of their heads are shaved. And that was to keep them cool when they wore their helmets. Uh. And then when they wore, wore their helmets, they would have their hair like straight down on the sides. When they were not wearing their helmet, they would have the top knot. Their clothing, they samurai children typically wear very colorful patterned clothing and it got more subdued as samurai got older. They wore a kimono as their daily clothing and their swords tucked into an obi on their left side. And an obi is like a belt. Okay. And I think it's like a fabric belt that's like tied in the back. No, they did not wear swords while indoors, but they did have a weapon on them at all times, like probably a dagger, like tucked in somewhere. Gotta be prepared. You never know. You never know. <laughs> yeah. And then outside, they wore a kamishomo over the kimono, which had two parts. So there's a sleeveless jacket, and then there were pants with wide legs, and they were called hakama. Okay. So they would wear those on top of the kimono. And then if they were traveling, they would wear another coat over the kimono. So those are all like custom clothing for samurai. And then samurai belonged to a class called shimin, and they were the top elite class of Japan. They wore two swords and had a family name and first name. So most samurai have like, and I think it's custom in Japan to say the family name first, and then like their their given name second. I've noticed in my sources, it kind of like flips them around a little bit. I'm reporting it as I saw it in my source. Uh, (laughs) The best we can do, right? (laughs) It could be flipped around depending on where I got it from. So I'm sorry. And shoguns and daimyo lords. And shoguns are basically military dictators. Oh. Um, And I'll get more into those in a second. But they were also considered shimin because most of them are samurai as well. And... Like I said earlier, the morals and ethics of the samurai still persist to this day, with honor and shame being prominent elements in modern society in Japan. Okay. All right. So, <laughs> uh, let's see. What page am I on? Okay. I'm a li- I'm about halfway done. Uh- <laughs> There's a lot of stuff about samurai I was not expecting. So, a lot of this next stuff I got from the documentary I watched. This is more of a cultural background, like, kind of explaining the the environment and the political structure at the time so japan historically has been very isolated from other civilizations yeah. one it's an island uh, easy so to it's do going to yeah. be pretty isolated <laughs> and it's also like super mountainous yeah and i think 
I watched something, and this this is not in my sources, and I'm not using this as an official in my research, but I think I saw a video that said, like, the, the northern part of Japan wasn't even explored until, like, planes were invented because it was so mountainous, no one could get, like, over there. Damn. Yeah. I could be wrong. That's from a video I watched, like, years ago, and I don't remember if that's completely true, but it was very isolated. And just because it's so mountainous, and it's it's a very large series of islands, there's a lot of very isolated communities Mm -hmm. in Japan. So there wasn't a lot of trade in between different provinces and communities. And agriculture is very difficult. The documentary said, like, 20% of the land in Japan is farmable. That's not enough. It's not a lot at all. And it's very hard to, like, it It gets really hot in the summers and absolutely blistering cold in the winters. There's monsoons yeah. that can create, like, big tidal waves and, like, earthquakes. There's so many earthquakes. Um, so it's really hard to have, like, a really stable crop there. But one thing that they are able to grow very consistently is rice. Rice is extremely important to a Japanese way of life. It is a cultural staple. It's a food staple. The documentary called it the lifeblood of Japan. Yeah. Literally wars happened over rice. Turnbull said, quote, there is therefore a great competition for land in order to gain access to other people's farming communities. Like if you conquered a province, you could gain access to their farming, their agriculture, get their rice. So the Yamato family became the ruling family in the 7th century. I didn't really see a whole lot before this. This is already really early in our story. Yeah. um, Before the samurai came into power. The first, they said the first emperor stepped into power. Um, The emperor became essentially high priest of the Shinto religion. And the Shinto religion is an indigenous religion. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of focus on like nature, um, the gods in nature. So the emperor was a. I'll I'll explain this now because this is going to be important as we move forward. So, the emperor, I think, most importantly throughout most of this episode and the story, is more of a religious figure. Okay. There are other people that are doing the actual like ruling, and I'll get more into a little bit later. But the emperor doesn't seem to have a lot of political power in and have itself it's more of like he is the high priest of the sun goddess okay mainly and the yamato family who came into power they claimed they were direct descendants of the sun goddess and this became an imperial standard samurai were expected to maintain and respect so like they continued to acknowledge that emperor was descended from the sun goddess and his family okay so shinto and buddhism which was also brought over in the 7th century were the two major religions in japan yeah for a very long time and they helped define a samurai way of life so like with these in mind according to turnbull samurai literally means one who serves or a servant and samurai had masters who they served like according to one of those theories that we talked about they were military officers that were appointed by like higher ups in mm-hmm. like high government officials and they also acted as guards to the emperor. They're an elite guard, yeah. like special forces. Special forces. I can never say special that right forces. the first time. <laughs> so Lowry said at some points in Japanese history, you had to be born into a samurai class to have the opportunity opportunity to be a samurai. And at other points in history, you could climb the ranks okay. from peasantry. So 
it depended. He said usually in times of warfare, you could climb the ranks from being a peasant. And in times of peace, you had to be born into it. How, what is the, like, time frame of the samurai? Like, start to finish? Oh, I thought I wrote that down. Um, oh my goodness. <laughs> I had it down somewhere, and I guess I deleted it like an idiot. Give me a second. Nope, that's not it. Uh, it says the age of the samurai is... 1185 to 1868. Yes. And that's CE. Common. Yes. Okay. So about 700 years. Yeah. Damn. It's a very long time. Um, thank you for You're that. Welcome. I had it and then I deleted it. It happens. <laughs> so I'm talking about the rise from peasantry. Lowry specifically names Hideyoshi Toyotomi, who I'll talk mm-hmm. about later who became shogun and he was born as a peasant. So he was able to rise oh, okay. ranks into basically the highest, highest position you could hold as a samurai. And there were different governments structured before the age of the samurai. Uh, government was very aristocratic, like I mentioned, and used a lot of family ties and bloodlines mm-hmm. to dictate positions of power. And then it kind of, it kind of stayed similar to that, but there was a lot more conquering mm-hmm. during the age of the samurai. <laughs> And Turnbull states in a documentary that for the first 200 years of the samurai's existence, they were enforcers of the imperial family and governance of what was similar to the Chinese bureaucratic form of government. And we actually talked about what the Chinese form of government was in the Wu Zetian yeah. episode. And this is about the same time frame, like the early, like, like seventh century is like that. It's still kind of maintained that form of government up until like the 1100s. Wow. Turnbull called them the quote teeth and claws. Sounds terrifying. <laughs> yes. I mean samurai were not you don't fuck around the samurai. No. Eventually the samurai came to realize, huh, you know what? We could do better. <laughs> Be better, do better. <laughs> yes. Okay, so now I'm getting more into I'm finally getting to everything that I said I was gonna talk okay. about later. <laughs> So this is the chronology of samurai in Japan. So I'm going to start pretty early on with the Nara and Heian periods uh, between 710 and 1192. So the original capital, original, I don't know if there's anything before this, of Japan was Kyoto, or at the time it was called Heian, Mm -hmm. and that was established in 794 CE. The culture was shifting from more Chinese-dominated customs to reflect the existing native beliefs and practices. It was becoming, quote, more Japanized. They're like, hey, like, we're going to come up with our own systems of government. So provinces around Japan were not protected from invaders and their political practices were not regulated. And the central government did not do enough to protect the people. So samurai emerged to do all these things. Okay. In the 12th century... The Minamoto and Taira families rose to prominence within, like, the imperial system and gained political and military power. So the Taira family had, like, political, like, court power, and then the Minamoto family had military power. And the emperor was Taira Kiyomori, uh, and he ruled from 1168 to 1178, so only, like, 10 years. Wow. So when Kiyomori died... The Minamoto and Taira families battled it out 
to see who was going to take over control. So the Minamotos won the Civil War. They reigned supreme and they took over politically in an era known as the Kamakura period, with Minamoto Yoritomo being appointed shogun in 1192. And the battle that happened is called the Genpei War, and it was between 1180 and 1185. Mm-hmm. And I say this because this is one of where, like, the the inconsistencies between my sources are. So one, the website afe.easiacolumbia.edu has a Kamakura period starting in 1185. The website japanguide.com has a Kamakura period starting in 1192. So it's more like, do you start it when the battle was won, or do you start it when the guy started taking over as shogun? Right. So it's it's a seven-year difference, I think, in the grand scheme of things. Like, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a close enough time period. So this is during the medieval period of Japan. Minamoto is a shogun in Kamakura. So like I said earlier... The emperor is like the religious figurehead. Right. The shogun became the military power. And they were essentially, like, they called the shots. They were the ruling class. Okay. The shogun. They had the political power. They uh, were essentially emperor in all but name. Okay. And that was kind of confusing me because that wasn't explicitly stated in anything I was researching. It was kind of something I, like, figured out for myself. Like, why does the emperor keep coming up in this when there's, like, the shogun? But it's because the emperor is a different entity and doesn't really have a lot of political power in itself. He's like a figurehead, basically. Yeah, basically. So, like I said, there is an existing power structure in Kyoto still while Minamoto was a shogun in Kamakura. And it's called a Kamakura period because when the Minamoto family won the war, they established their own capital in Kamakura. Mm-hmm. So they're, there's, they're in Kamakura and then the emperor is still in Kyoto. So Minamoto Yoshitsune, he was a traditional samurai and an excellent tactician. He helped fight against Ataira and there is a sea battle at Danoura which is an island. Mm-hmm. And this is crazy. I'm going to have to try to find a picture of it. The defeated warriors there of the Tyra family who died at sea are said to now live in the crabs there. And the shells show the faces of dead warriors. Hang on. Let me what f- find a picture. Cause they showed a picture of one in the documentary and it was the wildest shit I've ever seen. That's terrifying. Like, there's no, like, it's like, there's no way this can be real. But this is a similar picture that was, it's not the, I don't think it's the exact same picture, but it's a similar picture that was in the documentary. I'm going to post it in the, my notes. Okay. Haha. There it is. Oh my God. It looks like a face. Yeah. You can see eyes and like nose and it looks like a mouth with teeth. And yeah. And that shit wild. Oh, absolutely not. Oh, it's creepy. Yeah. It's going to yeah. be in my nightmares later. Yeah. So it said that the fallen soldiers and warriors of the Tyra family still live in the crabs. And, like, the spirits of them inhabit the crabs. Wow. Oh, that's so weird. Yeah. it's. Ugh. They showed a picture of it in the documentary. I was like, there's no fucking way. <laughs> that That's not real. And, I mean, by all accounts... 
That's a face. I believe it. Yeah. They're also called, um, according to Google, they're called Heikigani. Heikigani. And they're named after the once powerful Tyra clan, which dominated in Japan, commonly known as the Heike. I've, Heike. I've believed in weirder, so I believe it. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I'll post a picture so you guys can see. So around this time, uh, samurai were, quote unquote, peacekeepers Mm -hmm. during this transition, and they helped seize property from the aristocratic nobles. So this further weakened the previous government under the emperor and the samurai and military essentially took over Japan. Minamoto, the emperor, or the shogun, Mm -hmm. sorry, died in 1199, and there was a battle between Kamakura and Kyoto. Mm -hmm. Kamakura won, and they finally became the supreme ruling powers with the imperial family and power structure in Kyoto dissolving essentially. So from what I could figure out, there was still an emperor, but this is where they truly lost their, any kind of political relevance they had. Right. In the 13th century, the Mon- so this is going to be a callback to another episode that we did. So in the 13th century, the Mongols had taken over China and were setting their sights to invade Japan in 1274. Most of the invading force was decimated by storms. <laughs> and the samurai were able to barely hold off the Mongols who had made it to shore. What is it with Mother Nature just being like, mm, I don't like your ships. I don't like mm-hmm. what you're doing here. Yeah. It happened again in 1281 and storms still like decimated the Mongol invasion. If Mother Na- Please tell me they didn't try a third time. If Mother Nature tells you twice... To not invade. Stop invading. They were going to, but they had too much shit going on in their their own, like, area that they never made the trip over to Japan. But they had all intents to before shit went down. <laughs> the universe says stop. You gotta stop. That's... That's actually where we get the term kamikaze, because kamikaze means divine winds. And the Japanese were like, the, the divine winds have helped save us from the Mongol invaders. But because of these repeated attempts of invasion by the Mongols, yeah. the Kamakura government spent all of their money preparing for invasions. Right. When none came. So they're spending all of this money to like keep, like fortify their defenses and train their warriors, but they're not bringing in any money. Oh, no. And now their soldiers can't be paid. Oh, no. Because there's no money. (laughs) So in 1333, the emperor by birthright, Godaigo, restored the imperial power in Kyoto and triumphed over the Kamakura government. Wow. He's coming back. Yep. So it's back back in the emperor's hands. For now. (laughs) (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. Foreshadowing. (laughs) So the next period of time is the Muromachi period, Mm -hmm. or the, I've also seen it called the Ashikaga period. And that's between 1336 or 1338, mm-hmm. again, different sources, to 1573. Okay. So about eh, a little less than 200 years. So the Ashikaga samurai family took over the Kamakura government in 1333. So I guess, like, the emperor reinstated, like, his political power, but then the Ashikaga family were still, like, right shogun and all of that. But they proved they were not as effective in maintaining control of the surrounding provinces. Also, in 1543, the Portuguese brought guns to Tanegashima. 
So now Japan has guns. Thanks, Portugal. <laughs> During the 14 and 1500s, the shoguns in Kyoto basically lost all their power. They're... I was reading through it. There's a lot of back and forth yeah. between like the emperor and the shogunate. It was a lot and I, it was hard to keep track of. So I'm not going into it. You can look more into it if you want to yeah. during the Muromachi period. So samurai came in and helped establish power to the shogun in Kyoto, in Kyoto and samurai became more powerful politically. And then the samurai who had control over provinces in Japan became known as daimyo, mm -hmm. which I've mentioned before, but daimyo, they're essentially barons other provinces they during this era started becoming more sovereign mm -hmm. and basically ruled over their territory so even the shogun didn't have as much power over the provinces as the daimyo did even though the daimyo weren't ranked as high as the shogun because they had the power in their area they had right right okay more localized power yes okay. exactly and this also led to more fighting between the provinces and more totalitarian rule by the daimyo rather than the central government. Yeah. So there's just a lot of stuff going on. Enter another name. Um, I know it's a lot of names in Japanese and it's hard to keep track of. <laughs> We're going over 700 years of Japanese history. A very brief history, by the way. Like, And I know I'm not going to include absolutely every single thing that happened because oh my gosh, there's so much. I'm trying to really keep it specific to the samurai because, oh my yeah. gosh, there's so much. Yeah, it could be so much. Yes. So enter a man named Oda Nobunaga. Um, he was another samurai. He was able to capture Kyoto in 1568 and overthrew the existing government in 1573. And he eventually was, he didn't do it himself, but it set the paving stones to unite Japan. Okay from all the different provinces and the different emperors and all the back and forth and all that stuff. In 1575, the documentary talked about the Battle of Nagashino. And this is when they were talking more about, like, use of rifles. So the Takeda clan had their mounted samurai and they were charging against Oda Nubunaga, Nobunaga. And he had, like, a thousand rifles and he handed it out to his, like, most trusted foot soldiers. The way that the Takeda clan, like, did their initial charge is they would basically just, like, plow over, like, any kind of mm -hmm. front line that the opposing army had. But because Nobunaga had a bunch of rifles... They didn't make it. You know. I mean, they still made it. Apparently, the battle continued for nine hours afterwards. Oh, my God. But it kind of leveled the playing field a little bit more. Yeah. And they were able to have a more traditional battle. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, at that time, muskets, it took forever to refire. So it's basically, like, you shoot one time, shoot as many people as you can, and then you fight, like, traditionally with bows and arrows. Yeah. And swords and whatnot. And spears. And then Nobunaga eventually won this fight. So, now we're going to the Azuchi Moyoyama period. So Nobunaga took power in Kyoto, because he took it over, but he was killed in 1582. So one of his generals who we mentioned before, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, he was able to kind of retaliate against the enemy who had killed Nobunaga. Mm -hmm. And he kind of conquered Japan in the process. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. <laughs> and he was the one to finally unite Japan in 1590. So he basically okay. united Japan by conquering Japan. 
from what I gathered. <laughs> they nothing explicitly said that, but that's kind of the vibe. I got. It just it's just it's giving the like now y'all play nice vibes. Mm-hmm. Like it's giving mom got on to you now you have to like we're a family now. <laughs> we have to play nice. <laughs> And no one plays nice. They're just fighting all the time. Still sounds like my children. <laughs> <laughs> so during the conquest, and this probably led to his ability to conquer, he Hideyoshi confiscated all the swords and ordered all samurai to live in castle towns. So before this, like samurai mostly lived, they were elites, but they also had like their own farmland. They have their own, you know, crops and stuff. But now yeah. he's like, no. Y'all can no longer be farmers. You have to live in, like, the the castles. Why? So this was to increase divide in social classes. Oh. So now the samurai are even more elite, and there's even more of a difference between the samurai and the common people. And That's that rude. gave, that was allowed the government to have more control. According to the website, I got this from. Wow. So Hideyoshi eventually went off to conquer China, and he was killed in 1598. Um, So only eight or, yeah, like barely 10 years after he became like shogun. And he left behind a five-year-old son and Mm -hmm. his friend, question mark, Iesu Tokugawa, took his place as shogun. So mm-hmm. Iesu had co- connections to Hideyoshi and Nobunaga, and he was descended from the Minamoto line that we talked about that initially started everything. Yeah. So he was like, here I am. I am taking over now. And the documentary called him maybe the most famous samurai, but according to Turnbull, he called him the most successful samurai. Okay. And the, according to him, he, quote, reestablished the shogunate. So he is the one that was like, okay, the military powers are back. The dictator, the military yeah. dictatorship is back. And it was under his rule that this happened. So now we're getting into the Edo period between 1600 or 1603, depending on the source, mm-hmm. to 1868. So almost 300 years. So after winning the Battle of Sekigahara in 1600, Iesu was named as shogun by the emperor and moved to Edo, which is now Tokyo. Mm-hmm. So the shoguns from the Takagawa clan ruled for 250 years. Damn. Yeah. Up until about the end of Imperial Japan, almost. So the Takagawa family took total control over all areas of society and established castes. So there were class systems, and now there's caste systems. And we've talked about caste systems before. So the castes were divided into samurai, farmers, artisans and merchants with samurai at the top okay and you could not move out of your class you had to stay within that class and then there's also a fifth cast of like if you weren't any of those you were like outcasts essentially do you remember having to go through a caste system in school mm-hmm. and if you say we're in the samurai level they straight up let you go get lunch first yeah it was because um, we talked about it when we talked about Hinduism. Yeah. In like episode two, way, way back. Yeah. 
they had a caste system too of like Brahmin and I can't remember them all right now off the top of my head, but um, I was always an untouchable. <laughs> always? Every time? Every time. It always worked out that way. I, I never had any rights. I was painfully middle class every time. <laughs> right in the middle. <laughs> so yeah, now there's a caste system and this is where it's like, okay, now you're, you inherit the title of samurai. You're born into the family. Iesu... Mm-hmm. Specifically, he kind of dispensed, like he took existing land and redistributed it to the daimyo and more daimyo. So Mm -hmm. he was establishing more daimyo around Japan. And but he also made them spend every other year in Edo. So there it was like every other year he they had to live in Edo for a year. This had a lot of financial impact on the daimyo. Yeah. And it kind of ensured Iesu's rule because with one, their time split between two places and two, the financial strain, the daimyo couldn't really like unite or come up with like a plan or funds for like an uprising. Right. So it was, it was very calculated Damn. on Iesu's part. Yeah. Um, and this also allowed Edo, which would eventually become Tokyo, to boom in population and become a major cultural center in Japan. Because, you know, there are samurai living in Edo. Yeah. Like, a lot of them. And so a lot of artisans and merchants were coming in to, like... Sell their goods. Provide commerce. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Sell their goods to the samurai there. Um, By 1700, there were over a million people living in Edo. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's so many in 1700. Yes. (laughs) It's crazy. Wow. So starting around 1615, Japan was in a time of, quote unquote, peace. And it was more just because they were like crushed to the point where uh, they couldn't really do anything about it. Yeah. But because of this, samurai, they started branching out from just like their militaristic way of life, like trading by the sword, dying by the sword. They started becoming more, you know diverse in their interests they started getting Mm -hmm. into art into literature philosophy Mm -hmm. and according to the website i got this from the famous tea ceremony emerged from this time okay like the traditional tea ceremony it's very like it's it's a very beautiful ceremony but it's like a very like specific way Mm -hmm. ritualistic way of doing a, a tea ceremony but this emerged during this time towards the end of the edo period there is a lot less satisfaction with the existing government um taxes started getting higher and higher a bunch of natural disasters happened like there was droughts there was storms yeah earthquakes again there's so many earthquakes in japan all the time the the caste system started to fall apart a little bit and riots started happening more and that caused financial crises and financial strain on the government and the daimyo so it was just a lot of things kind of snowballing and over time Again, like merchants started becoming more wealthy, especially like in Edo. Yeah. And it started upsetting that power balance because originally the caste, the merchants were on like almost the bottom of the caste system. Yeah. But now they are more wealthy than the samurai and the samurai no longer have a means of gaining wealth anymore because there's no more battles. There's no more war. They're, Uh, you know, they don't really have a means. Yeah. They're only profitable when they have someone to fight. Yeah. And there's no one to fight. 
and it also this was just kind of a note that I saw, but um, Japan was ex- like very isolated during this time, and yeah. they forbade trade with any other countries with very, very few, very specific exceptions. So there was like more of a monoculture, like everything was very, very isolated during this yeah. time until 1868. So that's when everything is starting to change. So now we're getting into the, we're almost done. We're getting to the end here with the Meiji period between 1868 and 1912. We're not going to get all the way to 1912, but this is when this next kind of period starts. Yeah. So Turnbull in the documentary mentions a man during this time who he believes is the last of the samurai, a man named Saigo Takomori. He was named the greatest warrior in Japan in the late 1800s. Wow. He organized the Satsuma Rebellion when there was a lot of changes going on in the imperial structure. Um, and Saigo led an uprising against this. He lost the battle. Mm-hmm. He committed the thing we talked about yes. early on. Mm-hmm. So I think by all accounts, that was the last time that happened. And he was the last samurai. So The existing government... Uh, during the Edo period, eventually collapsed. And then Emperor Meiji was reinstated. So he was like the the descendant. And he was finally like legitimized as emperor. Mm-hmm. And he actually gained like political ruling power in Japan. And this is when he, because before the emperor had stayed in Kyoto, like the entire time the emperor was in Kyoto. But now he moved to what is now Tokyo, which is the current capital of Japan. There's a lot of big changes happening in Japan. Uh, Japan signed a bunch of treaties with Western entities and countries. Mm-hmm. And the government sought to implement democracy. There's wanting to implement equality throughout Japan. Mm-hmm. So now the caste system is completely breaking down. Yeah. And the samurai no longer had any privileges they'd been used to for hundreds of years. And by all intents and purposes, the samurai class no longer exists. Yeah. There are still, at this time, people still trained in the way of the samurai, but they're they're kind of irrelevant at this point. Right. And in 1867, the government of Japan looked to the West for inspirations for their systems of government, and they also changed the way the military was structured. So Lowry in the documentary noted that the army was comprised of the former commodore class, um, while the navy was made of a former samurai and descendants of samurai. Mm-hmm. And... They later evolved to the Air Force and kamikaze pilots. So they still kind of had that way of thinking. Yeah. And then the last note, both historians from the documentary, Lowry and Turnbull, note that the way of the samurai still lives on, more so in a way of living versus fighting in battles. Right. Essentially. Right. You can still take that mentality. Yeah. Hopefully not the thing we talked about. Let's not do that. Um, <laughs> no. But there's, um, they mention a lot of like loyalty to jobs, loyalty to brands, yeah, loyalty to your boss. That is still very prevalent in yeah. Japan. Complete dedication to your craft, whatever that is. Mostly just work, but whatever it is, like a lot of refinement, dedication to that. So yeah, that is a very brief, truncated history of samurai. Beautiful. Wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. I loved it. I See, I don't really... I never knew that much about... Um, I knew what seppuku was, and I knew um, about katanas. 
And I knew the overall like look and vibe of a samurai, but I didn't really know sp any specifics. So this was wonderful. Thank you. It took several days to research. Um, I know I didn't get everything. If you're a samurai expert, you don't have to yell at me. I know I didn't get everything. <laughs> Again, this is a very brief history. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait to cover. Um, what's her name? I got to scroll back up. Tomoe Gozen. Yeah, I want to know all about her. She seems like a badass. Yes. And I may do even more of a deep dive into different customs of samurai just to provide, like, context yeah. to her story. But I was talking with Kyle about this, and he was like, well, what does it take to be a samurai? And I tried looking it up, and I couldn't find anything specific. Oh. So maybe there wasn't, like, one specific way. It was mostly, like, you start training really early. Yeah. You get trained in the way of the sword and the way of the warrior. And that's about as specific and then off you as go. I could find. That sounds so yep. much like the last episode when we were talking about the Spartans very briefly. Yeah. We are of one brain. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's like, here's here's a sword, seven-year-old child. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> Have fun. There you go. I couldn't imagine. My son yeah, is crazy. almost seven, and him holding a sword, just the thought of it's like, hmm. And being able to use it well mm, to, like, yeah. at least maim people. Oh, my God. <laughs> I can't even get him to no just way. sit down and eat dinner. Like, <laughs> we played Uno for the first time last night with him. How was that? We, Nick and I both knew all the cards the kids had because they just could not keep them contained in their hands. But yeah. by golly, my daughter, who is four, picked up those rules like nobody's business. My son, every time he went to um, play like a skip or reverse card against me, he would look me in the eye and go, I love you, mom, but I'm skipping you. Oh, bless him. I know. He's like, I love you, but... Sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Um... There were some tears shed, but I feel like it, it was fine. It's fine. Um, yeah. Yeah. They need to learn how to lose and handle the Listen, it's fine. we played six rounds. There are four of oh, us. Wow. There are four of us. We only started with like four cards, so they were short rounds. Mm -hmm. I won two. Um, my daughter won two. Oh. Mom won two. And Nick won a big old goose egg. Nothing. He <laughs> lost. And he was the one that was talking shit before we played. So I was like, that's what you get for talking shit. <laughs> Man, Uno can break down a family, can't it? Can't it? And friendships. Yeah. yeah. Uno and Monopoly. Truly. I, oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. I still remember that time me and you and an ex of mine were playing Monopoly and he literally flipped the board. Just be better, dude. Like, I... <laughs> like it's a game. Like, I lost too. Yeah. You don't see me flipping boards. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm good. Like, I don't know what to tell you. I'm not going to take it easy on you. Quit being a big baby. <laughs> Listen, I grew up playing with Mama Jimmy, who would, like, she was ruthless in Monopoly. No one in the family <laughs> would play with her anymore. And now I've turned into Mama Jimmy. So, because nobody plays with me anymore. 
I'll play with you. Thanks. I know I'll lose, but that's fine. I'll still play. Hey, we still have. I'm a good sport. We have beeropoly, just the beer version of Monopoly. So it's more you know fun that way. Fun. It is fun. All right, it's getting late, so I figure we should do our socials. Okie dokie. Okay. Um, you can find us on Facebook page and group Ill-Equipped History Podcast on Instagram. At ill-equipped history. Patreon. Ill- Patreon.com slash ill-equipped history. TikTok. At ill-equipped history. Gmail. Ill-equipped history at gmail.com. Also, we do have open Q&As on our Facebook group and page. So if you have a question and you don't want to email us directly, you can just hop on there and ask a question and we'll answer it on the pod. And please like and share us. It does help us out a lot with the ratings and all that kind of stuff. Yes. Leave a review. Tell us how funny we are. We love to hear it. Yes. It makes our egos just sore. (laughs) No, what really happens is we take a screenshot and we send it to the other one and we're like, oh my God, look. We scream at each other. Yeah. We're like, ah! yeah. <laughs> I had a moment like that the other day where I read something and it was like very positive and I just like screamed in my bathroom. Thank God no one was home. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, and we may. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, you're fine. We may have some exciting news coming up. Um, yes. As details unfold. Yeah. We will share those details with you guys um it may take a little while but things are in the works and we're super excited about yeah. it so if you um you know ever find yourself in a in a pickle call upon your inner samurai yeah yeah and your katana can be used to get you a lot of, out of a lot of pickles mm-hmm. um also <laughs> if you die in the ocean apparently your face turns into a crab so sorry about that but you'll live forever as a crab. Mm. That's pretty cool. Is that what happened to Mr. Krabs? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no, Mr. Krabs can't be a samurai. <laughs> he can't. <laughs> he does not follow the way of the samurai. He does not. He's way too greedy. This is the way. The <laughs> way. The way. All right. All right. We're going to go now. Uh. Okay, bye! Bye!